You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear stories about a man who fell out of a window and he was saved by a flagpole. And how about seven tonsillectomies done in an assembly line fashion? And then we'll discuss the last cigarette commercial ever broadcast on network television here in the United States. I'm Steve Silverman, and all those stories and more are coming up next on the Useless Information Retrocast. Useless Information. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well. Unfortunately, my wife Mary Jane won't be joining us today, and that's because we already recorded about half of this, and during the playback, I noticed that it sounded like an echo chamber. Basically, what happened was, uh, you know, the microphones have a tough time picking up her voice, so I opened it up so she wouldn't have to have the microphone one inch from her mouth, you know, make it more comfortable. Unfortunately, in doing so, her microphone was picking up my microphone, and it sounded like an echo chamber. So uh, we got about halfway through. I listened to it, and I'm like, "Mm, this doesn't sound good. She had to go do her schoolwork, her prep for tomorrow, so uh, I'm all by myself. Anyway, let's get going here. Uh, The first three stories that I've chosen for today, they all involve falling in some form. Now, most of us take running water in our homes for granted. You know, you just go to the faucet, turn it on, and the water magically comes out. It's amazing, isn't it? But it wasn't that long ago that many rural homes lacked this modern convenience. Take, for example, the case of Willie Jordan. On October 22nd of 1935, The 26-year-old mother went out to get water from the Jordan Family Farm well, which was located in Gulf, North Carolina. She described what happened next. Quote, I was feeling fine, and when I got to the well, I drew the water and poured it in the bucket. She continued, I fainted while trying to put the cover over the well, and the next thing I remember was swimming around in the water. I looked up and could see a small opening. I started to scream and swim. The well was so large that it could take two strokes in swimming from one side to the other. A United Press article describes that well as having been 40 feet or 12.2 meters deep and filled to the 10-foot or 3-meter mark with water. Now, this is not a place that anyone would ever wish to be, particularly if one was eight months pregnant, which Mrs. Jordan was. Now, the good news is she was able to put her high school swimming lessons to good use. Quote, After swimming around for a while, I found a knot on the side of the wall. I hung to it and rested. It wasn't long before this gave way and I was in the water again. I tried to touch the bottom, but it was too deep and I started swimming around and around the well. 
Finally, I found a handhold and I clung to that until my husband came for me. As soon as he realized that his wife had fallen into the well, Alton Jordan sprang into action. He just happened to have been working nearby with a well drilling outfit, so he's able to lower himself down into the well to get his wife. He then placed a rope under Willie's armpits, tied it off, and then pulled the two of them up to the surface. Later, Mrs. Jordan stated, quote, I guess I was in the water 40 minutes, but it seemed like hours. I became unconscious when my husband left me, and I don't remember a thing until I was in the hospital. Willie may not have been conscious, but her husband discovered a big surprise tangled in his wife's clothing. It was a newborn baby boy. So he wrapped the two of them in blankets and he rushed them off to the hospital. It was determined that 7 pound 9 ounce or 3.43 kilogram Franklin Woodrow Emile Jordan had been in the water about 20 minutes before being rescued and that mom had absolutely no clue that she had given birth. Doctors concluded that the baby had been underwater the whole time and he didn't start breathing until he was brought above the water surface. Now, the Jordans did have another son. That was two-year-old Jack, and he was also born prematurely, and that was after Mrs. Jordan tripped while walking. (laughs) After six days in the hospital, Mom and her newborn were doing well, and they were sent home. But sadly, after doing some research, I found out that the story does not end well. You see, on April 4th of 1944, young Franklin died from post-operative shock. His death certificate states that he had a malignant tumor in the fourth ventricle of his brain. Franklin was only eight years, five months, and eight days old when he passed away. Very sad. Next up, we have a story from Sunday, July 2nd in 1950 that took place in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, which is just a short drive from my home. Anyway, the city was celebrating the Independence Day or July 4th holiday with an AMVETS, that's the American Veterans Parade, down Main Street. And 46-year-old Henry L. Laviv, who lived nearby at 36 Willow Street, he believed he had secured the perfect spot to view the parade. He had been watching from a third-floor window when he suddenly leaned a bit too far over the sill and he lost his balance and he went out the window. Unfortunately, Lefebvre had left his Superman cape at home and that greatly reduced his ability to fly. And as you know, gravity never fails. As Lefebvre was falling, he was able to grab onto a flagpole that jutted out below that third floor window. But Lefebvre was a little bit too heavy for that flagpole and it began to bend and he lost grip. But just at that moment, he was able to take hold of a sign bracket that jutted out from the front of the hotel. But he soon lost grip of that also, and he fell an estimated 10 feet or 3 meters. Yet, somehow, he was able to grab hold of a chain that was supporting the lower end of the sign. The parade came to a sudden halt as soon as the marchers and the spectators realized what was happening. With Lefebvre hanging on for dear life, the rescuers ran up to the second floor of the hotel, and they pulled him in through a window. Lefebvre was then rushed to a hospital suffering from both head and back injuries, But, as you can imagine, he was incredibly lucky to be alive. Wow. So let's move forward in time to June 16th of 1952. Here we find three boys. That's Kenneth Ray Jr. and brothers Ralph and Gary Sangster. They were playing atop a high cliff in Lake Arrowhead, California, which is located approximately 65 miles or 105 kilometers northeast of their Compton home. Suddenly, 10-year-old Kenneth lost his footing and he fell an estimated 200 feet or 61 meters straight down. 
He then landed atop a vertical rock slide and he was knocked unconscious. His limp body then continued to roll and tumble another 1,000 feet or 305 meters down the rocks until he took another drop beyond that. In the end, it is estimated that Kenneth had fallen approximately 1,500 feet or 457 meters. Wow. Amazingly, he survived. A rescue party placed Kenneth into a rescue basket and they carried him out, after which, of course, he was rushed to the hospital. Doctors determined he had a concussion, cuts, bruises, and possibly some internal injuries, but he was expected to make a full recovery. His mother remarked, quote, he's an awfully lucky boy. So here's a question for you. As you probably know, there are no cigarette commercials broadcast on television here in the United States. So my question is very simple. In what year was the last cigarette advertisement run on commercial television here in the United States? So I'll let you think about that for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Hello, party liners. Those words of Susan Mack to her friend Marilyn Owens are the key of today's visit on the line. In a moment, we'll join Susan and Marilyn and hear this news that Susan thinks her friend is entitled to know. Party liners tell me, what is your pet economy? I like to remodel my clothes and wear them a year longer. I think that's a very good way to save money. I'm going to take good care of my car, do some of the repairing myself, and make it last through the winter. These are all good economies, party liners, but there is one dangerous temptation that some people think is an economy. I mean, trying to save money at the expense of your health. Times are difficult. Pennies do have to be saved. But isn't it foolish to economize where your health is concerned? Your health, the most precious thing that you have. Is it wise to save a few pennies by buying harsh bargain laxatives when they might only lead to serious difficulty and possibly tremendous expense later on? Of course not. And I know that if you party liners will reason with me, you will see that one of the most economical laxatives you can buy is Dr. Caldwell's syrup pepsin combined with laxative center compound. For here in the first place is a sensible family laxative whose quality has never changed since Dr. Caldwell himself first prescribed it nearly half a century ago. Furthermore, syrup pepsin is a liquid, the kind of laxative used by many doctors and hospitals. Party liners, don't take chances on unknown laxatives that appeal to your sense of economy just because they're cheap. If you took syrup pepsin for a while and are now taking one of these bargain laxatives, by all means, take my advice now and order syrup pepsin for your family medicine cabinet immediately. Get a bottle from your druggist today. That commercial for Dr. Colwell's syrup pepsin is from the November 16, 1938 broadcast of Monticello Party Line. The concept of the show was that listeners would eavesdrop on the party line conversations of those who lived in Monticello, Illinois. Just coincidentally, that happened to be the same town in which Dr. Colwell's syrup was manufactured. What are the chances? Well, eventually the show moved away from the party line concept and evolved into the more typical soap opera. And the show focused on the lives of two couples, that's the Peters and the Tuttles, and of course all the things that went on between them and the rest of the people in Monticello. Based solely on newspaper listings of the show, from what I can deduce, it ran from September 1935 through February of 1939. 
As for Dr. Caldwell's syrup itself, it was concocted by a real doctor named William Burr Caldwell, who was born in Shelbyville, Missouri on March 27th of 1839. He moved to Monticello in 1885, having purchased a drugstore there, and then one year later he sold the drugstore and he moved his medical practice upstairs. While he didn't own the business, he would continue to mix up his popular pepsin laxative in that drugstore. Basically, it was an alcoholic solution that contained senna and small amounts of pepsin and Sally's silate, think aspirin, and then it was flavored with some peppermint oil and some aromatics were just thrown in as a bonus. Then, in 1892, Charles H. Ridgely, who was Dr. Caldwell's former store clerk, he suggested that the concoction should be made on a larger scale. Dr. Caldwell agreed, and the product was soon sold in neighboring counties. Then, as partners in the business sold off their stock, the Pepsin Syrup Company was formed and the sales went into overdrive. A combination of widespread advertising and giving away of free samples allowed the company to grow rapidly. Then, in 1906, Dr. Caldwell sold his share of the business to Pepsin, and he passed away in 1922. Yet, Dr. Caldwell's formulation continued to sell. In 1925, Pepsin was sold to Sterling Drugs for a reported $5 million, that's over $75 million today, and the division was renamed Dr. W.B. Caldwell, Incorporated. Today, Dr. Caldwell's syrup of Pepsin is no longer available. The last advertisement I could find for it was from October 16th of 1975. That's when Sam's in Kansas City, Missouri ran an ad for, quote, old-fashioned remedies, old-fashioned prices. And that was the end of Dr. Coldwell's syrup of pepsin. Well, we're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors. But when we return, I have a number of additional stories to share with you. Plus, I'll let you know when the last commercial for cigarettes ran on TV here in the United States. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. And now it's time for the segment that I like to call Footnotes History. These are short little stories that appeared in newspapers across the nation over the years, and there was no further research to do on them. I'm just going to read them word for word. 
And our first one is from the Los Angeles Times. It's dated June 5th of 1926. Headline, uses her body as incubator. Woman hatches silkworm eggs on person in an experiment by Associated Press Nightwire, Tacoma, Washington, June 4th. Mrs. Rose Castiglione is endeavoring to establish sericulture on Puget Sound. She obtained 3,000 silkworm eggs from Italy. To incubate them, she wrapped them carefully, placed them next to her body, and let the heat hatch them. She has put them on a mulberry leaf diet and expects to know soon whether silk can be grown profitably in this climate. Hmm, I wonder if that was a success. I don't know. This one's dated March 10th of 1936 and is titled Too Many Ends. Buffalo, New York, Associated Press. Anthony Foger told a judge he was amazed that his divorced wife, Anna, hadn't received her alimony. Regularly, every month, he said he had purchased the money orders and put the receipts away in a cigar box. The box was produced, and you're going to love this, the receipts were the complete money orders. Anna's complaint was withdrawn. Next up, we have a story from September 12th of 1939, and it's titled A Surprise in Every Bottle. And the subheading is Tom Gilroy, 68, Puts His Finger Into Trouble. Tom Gilroy, 68 years old, absentmindedly stuck his right forefinger into an empty pop bottle yesterday. Then he saw a wasp in the bottle. Before he could pull his finger out, the wasp stung the end of it. Gilroy smashed the bottle against the curb. He was treated at the general hospital for a wasp sting and a laceration on his finger. And I love this last part. Gilroy said he lived at the Helping Hand Institute. And this one's dated April 14th of 1949 with a headline that reads, 14 tonsils taken in family surgery. Manhasset, United Press. Putting off having your child's tonsils out? Then take a tip from Mr. and Mrs. Lester Backer. They took all seven of their children to the Manhasset Medical Center yesterday, and 90 minutes later, one doctor had removed 14 tonsils. Dr. S.A. Dahlgaard started on the youngest, Ronald III. Averaging 13 minutes to a child, he then operated on Richard IV, Dorothy VI, Lester VIII, Jean IX, Audrey XI, and Robert XII. Last night, the kids, all together in seven beds in one hospital room, were eating ice cream and grinning at each other. And our last story for today is dated June 5th of 1950 with a headline that reads, Hurler falls off bench, bruises pitching elbow. Boston Associated Press. Jack Bruna, Chicago White Sox Southpaw, was sidelined Sunday with a bruised pitching elbow, hurt when he fell off the bench. Bruna was sitting at one end of the bullpen bench in Yankee Stadium at New York Saturday, and Randy Gumpart was sitting on the other. Gumpart arose to watch a catch of a fly ball, the bench tilted, and Bruna fell off. So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you when the last commercial for cigarettes was broadcast here in the United States. What was your answer? Well, it was a commercial for Virginia Slims that ran on NBC's Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson on Friday, January 1st of 1971. Now, there are some sources on the internet that state the commercial ran at 11.50 p.m., and others say it happened at 11.59 p.m. So I decided that I needed to go back and check to see which one was correct. 
Well, an Associated Press article that ran in newspapers across the U.S. on January 2nd of 1971 states, quote, The last commercial on network television was a 60-second review from Flapper to Female Live for Virginia Slims on NBC's Tonight Show exactly one minute before the midnight deadline. So there's the answer, 11.59 p.m. The commercial begins with a choir of middle-aged women, all dressed in white Victorian outfits, singing that women shouldn't vote or smoke. Of course, as they're doing this, some of the women are shown sneaking off and grabbing a puff or two. Then the commercial's tone suddenly changes, and the jingle, You've Come a Long Way Baby, begins to play as an attractive model struts her stuff and smokes her Virginia Slim. Well, it turns out that model was Veronica Hamill, who would later find success playing attorney Joyce Davenport on the Hill Street Blues television series, which I remember fondly. This commercial was part of a last-minute blitz by Virginia Slim's manufacturer, Philip Morris. You see, not only did they purchase commercial time just prior to midnight on all three of the major networks, and if you don't know, the other two are Dick Cavett on ABC and Merv Griffin on CBS. Most people remember Merv Griffin for creating Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, but he was a talk show host at the time. Now, they also ran commercials on the January 1st football games. That was the Cotton Bowl, the Rose Bowl, and the Sugar Bowl. In total, the company ran 15 and a half minutes of commercials that day for Benson and Hedges, Marlboro Parliament, and, of course, Virginia Slim's brand cigarettes. In addition to Philip Morris, competitor R.J. Reynolds also ran ads in the Orange and Sugar Bowls, and that was for Camel, Doral, and Salem cigarettes. So it was one smoky day. Well, that brings another retrocast to a close. I'll try to remember to post a link to that Virginia Slims commercial on my website, which of course is uselessinformation.org. Just check for it in a couple of days and hopefully it'll be there. I just want to take a little detour here and say that over the years I've asked people to kindly review the podcast on iTunes and a lot of you have done that. I think it's up to about 1,600 people. I have to say I thank you very, very much for doing so and uh, your effort is greatly appreciated and it's helped immensely in allowing this podcast to gain an audience over the years. But as you know, there's a lot more competition out there. You know, namely, there's millions of podcasts. They just didn't exist when I first started. And that means it's hard for me to find new listeners. Basically, uh, my listenership has kind of stagnated. So I have a simple request. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell someone else who you think may enjoy it also. And that could be a relative, a colleague, a classmate. You know, you can create a post on Reddit, Facebook, or wherever. Whatever you choose to do, if you think it'll help bring new listeners to the podcast, I really do want to thank you in advance for your efforts. Anyway, if you'd like to contact me about this episode, the podcast itself, the website, or whatever, please do so through my email. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can go through Facebook Messenger, or you can use the contact form on the website. Anyway, I hope to be back in a couple of weeks with the next podcast. I know it's a bit of deja vu, but I'm having more dental surgery, but hopefully it's the last one. Anyway, the story I'm working on right now involves the late entertainer Eddie Cantor, and it's a very unusual story that hasn't seen the light of day in decades. Thanks as always for listening, and take care everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus... Tons of extra themed episodes. 
If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.